Uh, good morning. Uh, this morning's reading comes from Jonah uh, uh, chapter 2, and we're reading the whole chapter. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Apologies for the Bible reading being wrong up there. Clearly our admin staff and senior pastors away, so I put proclaim together wrong, that's my fault. Um, but we are looking at Jonah chapter 2 today, and you can find it in your Bibles there, and see most of you have got it open, so thank you. Um, again, welcome if you're new and visiting, it's great to be here. January is a month where we often see people coming from other states, people checking out new churches, and you're, you're very, very welcome. Uh, let me kick off. So I actually want to start with a story based on the CE camp. I went to CE camp as a camper when I was in high school. And I remember I'd come home from camp and... I'll just sit up here while I chat. I'd come home from camp and I'd be tired, exhausted, but really excited about my faith and just excited to have met a whole bunch of people my age who are also Christians, particularly coming from Wyala, a smaller country, when your Christian friends number on one hand, uh, seeing you know, a couple of hundred young people fired up about their faith was super exciting. And we'd come home from camp, uh, starting the school year, and I'd think, right, what am I going to do with my faith this year? What, what am I going to change? I want to tell people about Jesus. I've just heard that God is all-powerful. Let's test it out. So I remember starting a new school year in high school, thinking, right, who is the hardest kid in my year level, uh, who are, and, and I want to see if I can tell them about Jesus. So being a fairly naive but passionate young person, uh, okay, I'm going to pick this kid called Scats. Now, Scats had long, straight hair, very long hair, he had to tie it in a ponytail because of school rules. Um, he was a bit of a rebel, and the thing that really stood out about Scats is that he loved heavy metal music. So I thought, well, he loves heavy metal music. He must be a long way away from Jesus. So, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk to Scats about Jesus, it, and I, I, I got up the courage. They come round after school, I want to tell you about what I believe. So he comes over, and uh, super polite guy, actually, it turns out, it was really nice, but uh, I showed him this hyper-American Christian video, which didn't really explain the gospel, but I was trying something, and he was very polite. He said, look, the video was just not, I'm just not interested to that, uh, and it's just not my style, but thanks for inviting me around. He was very kind. Um, but the point of the story is I told my Christian friend that what I had done, and he said, Mike, you are wasting your time with scats. He is never going to become a Christian. Now, I don't know what he's up to. I really pray he is a Christian. I pray he's going well in life. But can we know the mind of God? Like, in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, 
one of the pinnacle things he says is salvation belongs to God. It's, it's God's business. God will choose who he saves. We can't know. It's very easy, I think, isn't it, to kind of play God and take on the mind of God and say, well, this person is very Christian-like. I, I could tell them about Jesus. They look like they would fit in well with us. Uh, and then find other people who are quite different to us or socially outside our sphere. Uh, and maybe we think, oh, they're a long way away from God. That seems like that seems hard. It's an easy thing to do. Uh, and sometimes I think we can shy away from being a bit more indiscriminate in the way that we share our faith. I'm not saying it's easy, but um, salvation belongs to God. That's not up to us. So we should be careful, I think, not to play God. And we learned something about this in Jonah chapter 2. Um, if you were here last week, we started Jonah 1 with our big shiny fish here. Uh, let me give you a summary of Jonah chapter 1. Speed summary. Jonah, here's the word of God. Go to Nineveh, for their wickedness has come before me. Now, Nineveh was an enemy of Israel, an enemy of Jonah. So Jonah pretty much says, nope, puts up his nope card and heads the other direction, catches a ride on a boat to Tarshish. Uh, on the way to Tarshish, of course, the storm hits. And after a bit of toing and froing, the sailors toss him overboard. And that's chapter one. For a more full account, please do listen to Naveen's sermon online. Uh, he did a great job expounding chapter one to us. And we pick up chapter 2 with Jonah in the drink. He is going to sink and things are not looking good for Jonah. Let me point out a couple of things. Jonah knew the storm was from God and he knew it was his fault. So you can have a look in chapter 1 of Jonah in page uh, verse 12. Jonah's talking to the sailors. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah wasn't expecting to be rescued. He knew the storm was his fault. He knew he deserved it and he's drowning. And in verse 17 of chapter 1, God rescues him anyway. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's be honest, this is a pretty crazy story. This is one of those stories I think you go, really? Is this metaphorical? Did this really happen? Jonah was grabbed by a fish and lived on in its belly for three days and three nights. It's a little hard to swallow for some people. Uh, thank you for the giggle, I appreciate it. <laughs> there have been attempts to kind of explain this. Some people really like to focus on the fish. What species of fish was it? Uh, was it some traditions say, you know, it was a whale. It could have been a whale. Um, and some people even look to modern day examples of people being swallowed by fish as evidence. And there are a couple of interesting stories of people getting trapped inside large fish, whales, and living for a while. Um, I really like one commentator who tries to explain the Jonah story this way. He says, well, Jonah actually wasn't swallowed by a fish at all. What happened, and he's reading into the text quite a lot, but what happened is he was thrown in the water and he washes up on the beach and then he takes three days in a restorative reprieve in an inn and the inn was called the fish. <laughs> now, I think, I like that. It's a nice attempt to explain it away. I think though, hey, it's a very clever tavern that can vomit out its patrons to foreign lands. You know. 
uh, is kind of interesting. I think we can't focus too much on the fish because, of course, well, it only gets one verse or two verses in the whole book of Jonah. It's not the point of the book. Uh, what we can do, I think, is say, oh, look, it, we can accept it as plausible because God does miracles. You know, here's our other miracles as part of the Red Sea, and we typically accept those miracles as being true. Why not this one? Here's a unique time when God provides a specific creature for a specific task, and it does God's bidding. Why not? It's God's miraculous intervention. And in, from inside the fishy lifeboat, Jonah prays. And chapter 2 is his prayer. Chapter 2, I think, is a little interesting. Like, why is it actually there? We could take out chapter 2, the prayer, and the narrative of Jonah would flow on just fine. So one of my questions is, well, why is it here? Why is it here? It's a good one to try and answer. Let's have a look at it. Um, if you look at verse 2, the first verse of his prayer in chapter 2, this is how Jonah starts his prayer. And it's, it's a bit of a summary. It's a summary introduction to his prayer. He says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. What does this remind you of, the style of the prayer? Does it sound familiar? Where else in the Bible might you hear prayers like this? Psalms, book of Psalms. And in fact, you can classify Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 as a thanksgiving psalm. And there are other psalms in the Bible that fit the same structure and pattern of the prayer and have similar phrases and similar actual imagery. So let's have a look at one of these examples. Can you have a look at Psalm? Keep your finger in Jonah. Jonah's an easy book to lose. So keep your finger in Jonah and flip to page 543 at Psalm 18. And I'll read out this psalm and see if you can kind of see some of the similarities between Jonah's prayer and Psalm Psalm 18. So it starts with a little note, which is original text. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hands of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David is saying this prayer, this psalm, as a thanksgiving for his delivery from Saul. And he says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. And in verse 4, the cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snare of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before me into his ears. This is a similar feel, isn't it? A similar kind of prayer. That cords entangling, death engulfing is the same as what Jonah's praying. It's a, it's a, a psalm of thanksgiving. And for Jonah, who was a prophet, a good Jew, some might say a good Jew, he would have known these psalms. He would have recited them in his youth. So I think what's going on is that from within, from within the fish, Jonah is praying a psalm that is entirely keeping with his very unique context, while at the same time drawing on that history and tradition and metaphor of Thanksgiving psalms. All right, so Jonah's prayer is a thanksgiving psalm. You can look at it in two parts. So if you think of verse 6, is like a pivot point. 
first verses, 2 to 6, are really his predicament as he's sinking in the waves. And after the second part of verse 6 and the rest of it is his thanksgiving at his salvation, his rescue. So let's have a look at the first part, then the second. It can be a bit confusing, the first part. As you read it, you go, what's going on? Where is he? What's he praying about? Uh, those first, first six verses, I think, so Jonah is praying from within the fish. But what he's recounting is that moments when he's sinking in the water before his rescue. So his distress is at drowning. I don't think his distress is at help, I'm stuck in a fish. I think the fish is his, is his means of salvation. It's his rescue. The stress is his sinking. So if you keep that in mind, he's sinking in the waves, he's crying for help, and in his psalm, he's recounting his distress as he sinks. And this is what he says. So again, verse 2, in my distress, this is Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realms of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled around me and your waves and breakers swept over me. So he's sinking in the waves. It seems hopeless. Down, down, down he goes into the water. In fact, downward movement in Jonah is a bit of a thing. You can see a pattern. And I think as he moves down, he's symbolically moving further away from God. So um, if you like to flick to chapter 1, verse 3, he moves down to Joppa. And then verse 5 in chapter 1, he goes below deck. And it says he goes down into a deep sleep. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, he's thrown down into the sea. In chapter 2, verse 2, it's deep into the realms of the dead. It's getting further away. In verse 3 of chapter 2, you hold me into the depths. Like, he, notice his predicament. He's gone down about as low as he can go. I, I wonder for Jonah if this is a rock-bottom moment. Certainly, he was expecting to die. So he started... Chapter 1, by running away from God. And now I think he's afraid that he's succeeded. His fear is that he's been separated from God. When you listen to his prayer, it seems at some point, you kind of, is, he, is he talking about sinking in the water? Or is he talking about some kind of, does he cross over at some point in his downward spiral to like a spiritual depth, a, a death, a drowning, a spiritual removal? It uses words like barred in, banished. Have a look at verse 5 and 6. The cords of death entangled me. Oh, this is the end of verse 4. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to help for God. He's banished, barred in, separated. He's sunken very low. And you notice... Who sent him there? Like it, it wasn't uh, the sailors who threw him overboard with such trepidation. It wasn't the storm that sent him there. He identifies it as God. You see his very personal use of the word you in his prayer? You hurled me, your waves and breakers. It's interesting to me that in the moment of Jonah's demise, he kind of acknowledges God's sovereignty in, in what's going on. It's you, Lord, who have done this. This is your just judgment of my rebellion. He is sinking. I wonder if you've ever felt 
like Jonah, perhaps symbolically, sinking. I wonder if you've ever felt that far removed from God, unattainably, you know, separate from God. Sometimes we feel like our sin is like, oh, God couldn't have anything to do with me. I'm beyond His reach. I'm, I'm removed, I'm separated, banished, barred off. I wonder if you've ever felt, felt like that. Of course, we know God is power and forgiveness is capable of bringing everyone back to that place of forgiveness and mercy. But we can feel separated. Theologically, of course, we all start in that position. Theologically, without forgiveness, we are hopelessly separated from God. I mean, if you've been with us at the end of last year, we spent quite a number of weeks looking at the book of Romans. And, and in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul spends a long time at the start of the book just trying to help us understand how separate from God we are when we stand on our own feet. Um, you just recall it with me. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, uh, Paul says, There is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And he goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a, a universality to our spiritual separation with God when we try and stand outside of his loving mercy. And, and we know in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, what's the consequence? Well, the wages of sin is death. And we deserve it. We know we do when we we, we grapple with the theology of Romans and, in fact, the Bible more generally. We're separate from God when we stand on our own, sinking desperately, drowning. Jonah knew he deserved it. And Jonah expected to drown. and, And as he said to the sailors, it's my fault that this great storm is upon you. The surprise for Jonah... The surprise for us is that when we cry out to God from that place of desperation and deserved punishment, He hears us and rescues us. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. It's that second half of verse 6, that turning point. But you, O Lord, brought me up from the pit, praise Jonah from within the fish. This is the great turning point. Jonah was drowning, down, down, down. There was nothing he could do, but God rescued him. Undeserved mercy from God. And this leads to thanksgiving. And that second second half of his psalm of thanksgiving, from 6b down to the end, is his turn to his resolve, his thanksgiving at his rescue. Let's have a look at it. So this is 6b, the second half of verse 6 to 9. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. as a reversal. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. It's a remarkable thing for Jonah to say. Well, what, what do we learn from Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving in the second half? 
Well, firstly, from a place of distress, Jonah cries to God and God hears him and rescues him. He's heard. And and Jonah contrasts his rescue experience with the futility of crying out to an idol, a false god. As an idol capable of helping someone in distress, Jonah says, no, all other gods are hollow gods. They're not gods at all. Unlike the Lord, idols, calling to idols from a place of distress is futile, it's pointless. But Jonah will yet again sacrifice to God and with shouts of grateful praise. Hear the contrast. He promises to make good his vows. So Jonah actually does what the sailors were doing, those pagan sailors, when the storm calmed, they made vows, and now Jonah actually is as well. Salvation comes from the Lord, he says. And then the fish spits him out into the dry land. So, poignant prayer. No empty idols can do for Jonah what God has done. The sailors couldn't prevent it from happening. God rescued Jonah. He couldn't save himself. And salvation, he says, salvation comes from the Lord. It's God's business, God's choice. So my question before was, why is chapter 2 actually here? What do we gain from this chapter? Well, a Jewish reader, an original reader of Jonah, would have been so clearly in their minds that here Jonah is praying a psalm of thanksgiving. They would have known from chapter 2 Jonah is so grateful for his salvation, his rescue at God's hands. Jonah's alive, even though he didn't deserve it. Jonah had experienced the undeserved grace of God, his undeserved mercy, and he knew he had. He knew he was the recipient of it. God had not treated Jonah as his sins deserved. And from that divine rescue from his watery grave comes Jonah's thanksgiving psalm. It shows clearly Jonah is thankful for his rescue. And he can say with theological accuracy and personal experience, salvation comes from the Lord. And he makes vows. So has Jonah learned his lesson? Chapter 2, it's a great psalm, a prayer of thanksgiving. He knows his experience, God's mercy, undeserved. And he goes forth with... Or we know from the rest of the book, sometimes his trips up again. So ironically, the very next time Jonah prays, the same theological truth, salvation comes from the Lord, instead of leading Jonah to thanksgiving, leads him to great anger. Now, I'm sure Carl won't mind, because Carl's coming back and preaching on chapter 3 and 4 next. I'm sure he won't mind if we jump ahead a bit. I think we kind of need to, to look at Jonah's next prayer. So flick over to chapter 4 and verse 1. So... Uh, as the story goes on, Jonah does arrive in Nineveh, he does preach to the Ninevites, and they do repent, and God chooses to spare them. And Jonah prays. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, Jonah, what a miserable prayer. 
Jonah's reaction to God's undeserved grace shown to Nineveh is anger, bitter anger. This is jaw-dropping, isn't it? Jonah, who's just received mercy from God, turns around and flares in anger when another group of people receive that exact same gift of grace. It seems a bit, come on, you're happy when you receive mercy and now you're angry that someone else is? Jonah Jonah in chapter 2 cries, salvation belongs to the Lord. Tick, correct, it does. And in chapter 4, that same truth leads to life-despairing anger. It seems that Jonah is happy to praise God with thanksgiving when he receives undeserved mercy. But when it comes to someone else, another group of people, even though they're his enemies, he wants to hold it back. He wants to restrain it and control it and seize back that control from God. All right, application. What does this mean for us? I think the book of Jonah sets us up for a fool. It sets us up to smile, snigger at Jonah and shake our heads at Jonah's uh, seeming foolishness and his hard-heartedness. And rightly so, it seems pretty crazy, doesn't it, that Jonah turns around in the way he does. But at some point, do we do the same thing? Do we sing thanksgiving to God for his abounding love and graciousness, graciousness while at the same time kind of being hard-hearted towards others who don't know his loving kindness. Are we willing to embrace God's forgiveness with our backs firmly fixed against those who we don't perhaps see as deserving of God's mercy? At Trinity Church only, we work really hard to keep mission at the center of what we do, but it can be hard, it can be difficult now, people do turn us down, don't they, when you invite them to church events? People do have strong opposing opinions. Uh, people sometimes do have strong opposing opinions to God. They have arguments that they put up in place to why they don't need to believe. Um, some people just re- reject the church itself as being a human institution that fails. But sometimes, People do listen, they do respond, they do ask questions, they do take us up on offers to investigate what Christians believe. And people do become Christians. We've seen that in just the two years that we've been here. But at what point do we sometimes fall on the Jonah spectrum? If Jonah is a bit of an extreme, someone who's happy to receive mercy but wants to hold it back from others, where do we have the potential to fall. Perhaps sometimes even our complacency is a bit Jonah-ish. I don't know. That's something we need to ask ourselves, I think. Here's the reality. Salvation belongs to God. We just don't know who God has been working in. We don't know who God is going to save. We don't know who will show mercy to. All we can do is faithfully clearly present the truth of God's loving kindness and mercy. And God will save who he saves. It takes the the pressure off us a bit too. Because when someone rejects our message, you go, okay, well, it's up to God in the end anyway. And we'll just keep being faithful. 
I just need to humbly accept that God will save who he saves. Uh, And whether that person has lived a life of crime and rejection, or whether there's someone who seems very Christian-like, let's indiscriminately continue to be faithful uh, as best we can with the message of grace and mercy that we've got to give to others. Let's pray that we'll be indiscriminately obeying God's call in our lives to go and tell people everywhere the good news of God's mercy, undeserved, yet freely available to all who cry out to him. If you're someone who doesn't um, know, if you've come to that point of accepting God's forgiveness and mercy, please do chat to others around here that you know. You can talk to me or someone else who you've seen up front about, actually, what do Christians believe? I want to investigate more. Or pick up a Bible and just read one of those biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and see how this person, Jesus, this God person, has brought life and forgiveness to all. I'm going to pray and then hand back over to our band. And as we sing our next song, we're going to be praising and thanking God for his loving kindness to us. Um, Let's do that in a way uh, that also keeps in the back of our minds those who don't yet know that loving kindness. All right, let's pray. Uh, Gracious God, we do thank you for your mercy and kindness shown to us in Jesus. Your great, powerful love that divinely calls people to you. Help us to confidently cry out with thanksgiving, salvation belongs to you. May we trust you. Help us to be bold, clear, and indiscriminate in the way that we talk to people about you. In Jesus' name, amen.